0: Hello and welcome to hell is for hyphenates for July 2017. I am writer hyphen. There's no more room in hell, so come back, George Romero, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is.
1: So if you may uh, hyphen, slightly thrown by that moving intro because George Romero was my first hyphenate, and um, now that I'm a confirmed mole woman, this is this is going to be my last yeah i'm uh I'm taking myself off air um I should add that I am not literally a mole woman and I am not intending to make fun of anyone who has survived such a situation. It's just that I am locking myself in my apartment and never leaving again
0: Wow that's uh that that's I, I won't I won't feign shock because obviously we talked about this before we started recording. But yes, this is your last <laughs> episode, and yeah, I, I did actually throw that Romero thing in deliberately. I was hoping you'd you'd pick up on that. So uh, coming to an end, two years, two, two years is a pretty good run. Yeah, uh, that's I've... approximately seven hundred films, I think.
1: Yes, thank you, uh, Becky, for *Fast Bindo*, which was at least a hundred and fifty uh, of those <laughs> films, and um, I've I've enjoyed more or less every minute, certainly of recording and getting to know so many fantastic critics and filmmakers. But I'm I'm breaking up with cinema. Actually, doing *Hellas for Minutes was kind of my couples therapy. <laughs> So I don't think I sort of told you that when we started, Lee. But I was like, Cinema (laughs) and I were having a rocky patch, and I thought this could be a good way for us to, you know, work it out, spend some time together, see if we still saw anything in each other. And I kind of feel like Cinema doesn't really want me anymore and um i'm it's mutual so me pajamas television like there's just so much television right now that is awesome and important and when jane campion tells you that cinema is over i mean i i listen so can we blame jane campion
0: uh sure if you like uh so so basically you're saying uh this is, this is your version of it's not you, it's me, is like it's not the podcast, it's cinema in general.
1: Exactly. It's totally not the podcast, and I love podcasting. And obviously, if Jane Campion were ever to be the guest, I would punch my way through whatever is five minutes co-host you had to come back <laughs> and be on that one or just to listen in. But yeah, I've been a film critic for 15 years and I guess you just have to know when to go when you're in a constant state of rage. I don't think it's great for cinema. You know, there are films that people love and are really committed to that just reduce me to apoplexy and storming out. And I think that probably makes me a bad film critic at this point. However, entertaining <laughs> or not, I uh, I maybe, when I give it the full Waldorf and Statler, uh, on the podcast there's so many great voices out there like we've seen such a renaissance in film criticism with you know just the wave of podcasts of which you know hell is for hypheners is obviously a pioneer i'm excited to hear new voices that have the enthusiasm and energy that as a really old woman i just don't have anymore i'm old
0: it's uh, I, I was thinking about,
1: you think about how <laughs> oh. old i am <laughs> oh. <laughs>
0: So, so yeah, it was it, just going back two years. It was around the time that Paul was leaving. And I was trying to decide whether to get someone new in or, or in the show completely. And and I thought, no, let's get a new voice in there and see if we can continue it. And I was just about to move to England. And so it was this weird process where I just sort of started reading all of these London film critics, and I made a shortlist. And the first person on that shortlist, the person whose work I enjoyed the most, said yes and agreed to be on the podcast. And so we started and then what talking. Happened? And... <laughs> No, two years is a decent run. <laughs> it's been interesting sort of just like approaching a stranger and then becoming really good friends with that, that person and meeting them, you know, months after we'd started recording when I finally flew to, to London and then, you know, things got complicated and I had to come back to Australia and then we ended up doing like... After I think we had uh, maybe five months' worth of shows with me in London, and then suddenly I was back in Australia, and then every show was via Skype since then. And I was, I was very glad uh, you, you wanted to stick around and, and, and do the show uh, uh, for so long. So, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful that uh, you stuck it out for two years, given, uh, given you were falling out of love with, uh, with cinema in general.
1: It was, I mean, it was a totally intriguing request, you know, to have someone who just knows you through your work make this incredible offer to come into a project that, you know, you started up with Paul and that you'd been running to to welcome me in, really, to your world when we'd never met. We'd spoken on Skype once (laughs) and we, you know, we'd done the six degrees of separation thing. And one of the really great pleasures for me has been learning a lot more about the amazing Australian film community, film criticism community, filmmaking community, which seems so lively. And, you know, obviously part of the reason I'm leaving is because I'm so jealous of not coming to the Melbourne International Film Festival this year. It's just too (laughs) traumatic not to be there with everyone doing such great work. But when it, you know, swinging back from building kind of community in London and working together here to this Australian community that I can't touch and can't get to know in person. It's been great to discover it, but I feel like, you know, maybe it's time to recommit to that and there's so much going on there i the mm. the sort of late night early morning recording schedule <laughs> like we it's more complicated than a polyamorous relationship trying to schedule the scoping for these with like a guest in california who's traveling across three time zones and you know, it's uh, we haven't quite got to a Google spreadsheet yet, but uh, I felt that one was coming.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was getting pretty complicated uh, there with the with the multiple continents, which was exciting the first couple of times yeah. and then just became <laughs> like, oh, one of us has to get up at 4am. Why well, is everyone
1: always okay. in Hollywood? What, is, what does that place have that <laughs> we uh I have
0: no idea. It's 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 baffling. I, I don't know what it has to do with film. but
1: I'm really excited to keep listening. I have some inkling of the filmmakers who are coming up for discussion and some of the guests and the continued sort of expansion of the hyphenates universe. So I'm looking forward to being a listener from my sofa in my pajamas while, you know, (laughs) taking breaks in the sort of intensely dystopian feminist television universe that I'm committing to. And who knows, maybe that will be a way, you know, just by listening rather than having to come up with opinion to uh, renew my relationship with, with cinema, which I continue to believe is not fatally flawed, undermined, whatever. We'll see.
0: No, it'll come back. It'll come back. And uh, whether that's because of, you know, listening to hyphenates or despite it, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> I'm sure it'll come back. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's been great having you on the show and it's been even better getting to know you. And uh, thank you so much for the past two years and for, you know, taking a chance on the show and, and, and on me and, uh, and yeah, being part of the whole project.
1: Well, thanks to the Hyphenates fam, especially you, Lee, for putting up with my insane rants. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, about everything uh quite frankly which have you know happen on email so the milder version can appear on the on the podcast so and we'll um, be
0: publishing all of those emails in the show
1: (laughs) me and hillary clinton are secret (laughs) emails uh, (laughs) in a book (laughs) Oh god! Now the Russians are going to start hacking, looking for that stuff she says with her incredibly inflated ego. Oh,
0: we'll do we'll do Tarkovsky again and and uh, and, uh, and sate them. We'll just appease them with some more, uh, uh, you, or maybe some Soviet
1: Like you need to do, you know, a filmmaker who's stuck to the, you know, the Soviet code. I can't really yeah. think of one who was any good. Kalotsov sort of got in trouble. To, ah no, cinema. Mm. leave my brain anyway you guys (laughs) should talk about actual films i can't believe i'm checking out before having the opportunity to discuss one of my super favorite films of all time that i totally did not walk out of in a fit of rage guess which one from the lineup of reviews
0: yes i have a feeling you listening back to this episode you're going to hear me heap praise on a film that you walked out on so i apologize in advance for that
1: That's been the beauty of this relationship and of film criticism is, you know, friendship, film taste have nothing to do with each other. And it's always great to hear someone else's take and and respect it. Even when you're so furious, there's steam coming out of your ears. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be able to see it from Melbourne as I'm listening. Like it will be that much steam.
0: No doubt. Well, uh, (laughs) hopefully, you know, I won't i won 't get your blood pressure up too high and uh, and you 'll you know be able to enjoy the show, but yeah do 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 take it easy, please you know keep in touch, uh, check back in, come back on again sure and, uh, yeah
1: thanks for having me
0: Well, that just happens, so it 's just me here, except it 's not because I'm now joined by this month's guest, coming to us from Austin, Texas, I think I've got that right, is film critic, author and editor, Britt Hayes. Britt, welcome.
2: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: It's, it's my pleasure. Did I, I was right about Austin, wasn't I?
2: Yes, that's, well, actually, technically, right now I'm in Houston, house and dog sitting for my mom, but usually I live in Austin.
0: <laughs> ah, nice. So uh, Christopher Nolan has a new film out, Dunkirk. Have, have you seen this?
2: I have. Um, I saw it last week in 70mm laser IMAX the way the good cinema lord intended.
0: Excellent. Yeah, that was that was actually how I saw it as well on the uh, Melbourne's IMAX screen. And uh, I don't really want to get into the whole... We should be able to watch films on Netflix. We have big enough screens. It should be accessible for everyone. I like the dem- democratization of it. I've got to say, that that that's 70mm. That's the only way to see <laughs> this particular film. That was extraordinary.
2: I mean, I don't know if it's, you know the only way to see the film, but I do <laughs> highly recommend that if that format is available to you, that mm. you should make that a priority to see it that way.
0: True. It's pretty extraordinary, and I think I was distracted a lot by the visuals, if if that makes sense. <laughs> I was sort of so, so blown away in my seat that I, I think I actually missed a lot. So I'm actually going to make a confession up front. I, this very rarely happens. I almost feel like I can't talk about this film, even though I'm going to, <laughs> because... I don't know what happened. Uh, since I've seen the film, I've discovered that I missed a lot about what was happening with the chronology. Um, I didn't actually realise the film was cutting between three differently paced timelines, which feels like, feels like a big thing to have not realised. Uh, and I'm kind of shocked that that, sort of, that that didn't register with me when I was watching it, and it was only thinking back that, and talking to other people that I realised I, the three storylines are moving at completely different paces.
2: Yeah, I mean... I I knew that going on, so I was prepared for it. And the, they have the title cards throughout. Well, at least in the first, you know, when they first introduced the three threads. It's like, you know, the mole... Whatever they called the other one, I don't know. (laughs) But it's like, you know, this one takes place over the course of a week. This one takes place over the course of a day or an hour or whatever. I didn't find that too confusing. I know some people kind of struggled with it, especially because the editing there. And I think somewhere around the third act, if you want to call it that, we start to see Fionn Whitehead's character kind of almost like he's in two places at once (laughs) because he's like, you know, they're on the boat and it capsizes and then he's got to go get to Mark Rylance's boat. But then we flip back and he's already on Mark <laughs> Rylance's boat. I don't know that that's particularly graceful editing. Mm. So I get it. I'm also, I mean, I'm not completely head over heels for Dunkirk. I do find it visually beautiful. That's inarguable.
0: Yeah. I uh, Look, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit the same. I've actually come to like it a lot more as I've been thinking about it. At the time, it kind of left me cold. It was one of those films I sort of really admired while I was watching it without really feeling any sort of emotion, which which I I don't always mind. Like, I don't mind sort of the cold filmmaker style every now and then, but for some reason... Like, I, I think with this one, where you're meant to feel a lot, uh, we are pretty much just tick the two boxes of either cowardice or heroism, and there's not a lot in between, uh, and I kind of feel like a really gut-wrenching emotional story would have elevated it uh, so much more. I, I do feel like it has something new to say. Like, I feel like sort of around the Saving Private Ryan Band of Brothers era, we started seeing a lot a lot of war stories that dealt with the sheer banality of evil in war. Like, I didn't exactly grow up on war movies, but those that I did see were all about celebrating courage in adversity. Recently, and I know this this, this goes way back with films like Platoon and so on, but recently the, we've really run with the idea of the mundane. It's not just the enemy bullet that will kill you. It's the million small things along the way. And I don't think it's necessarily about the nobility of retreat or rescue, even though those elements are in there. I think it's all about those little small twists along the way where simply standing in the wrong place will get you killed. Uh, just the, the, the little little twists of fate will completely dictate what happens to you, and I kind of like that where you, 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 once you reach that beach, you know in the beginning the soldier reaches that beach and thing, you know you get the sense of okay they 're going to be okay, but there are still a million things between them and home that could kill them and i I like that I, I like that aspect i mean i don 't like that aspect of it I like that aspect of the film where it 's sort of underlining that you know every every part of this is dangerous.
2: Right. Um, I do. I, I like the concept of watching, especially, um, you know, the segment with the soldiers where they're just going from one. It's like one thing after this, like, oh, my God. And so they get out of this another in this. It's like, you know, they're jumping from one frying pan to another. It's I think that that's really interesting and visually engaging. But, you know, like you, I, I just kind of felt at a remove from all of them. I never knew any of these characters. The closest you get to an emotional story, really, is Mark Rylance and Killian Murphy. I mean, like, they're giving really great performances. I don't know that it really sells the little tragedy that happens on the boat, but I think that everything around it, you know, I, I get some sense of emotional value from both of them. But that's really it. I mean, I mean, all of these characters are just vessels for a story, they're not really. They, they almost feel like accessories to this technical spectacle. Mm. Yeah, like they're not actually yeah they're like cogs in the machine of Christopher Nolan and not really people.
0: I uh, I couldn't agree more. I think that maybe that's why I didn't realize there were three chronologies going on because I didn't <laughs> I can't really tell the difference between all of these. Uh, you know, there's a bit of face blindness going on there. But
2: oh my god, uh, that movie has a type. I wrote a whole jokey article about this last week where it's just like here's how to figure out if Harry, like who Harry Styles is in Dunkirk. It's like, <laughs> they're all the same. They're all like cheekbones with eyes. Like, they're just very angular British men. Like, <laughs> you know, they're all cut from the same, like very sharp cloth.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, cheekbones with eyes, uh, The Beguiled, uh, <laughs> Sophia Coppola's, latest film. Uh, it, it's the remake of the Don Siegel uh, Clint Eastwood film, which I have not seen, about oh my God. a southern... Uh, sorry, no, it's a northern soldier who is injured and, uh, and finds himself in a southern... Uh, boarding school for for girls is that is that an accurate summary I...
2: yes it's uh during the civil war it's a, a union soldier and they are fighting to free slaves and he finds himself in a confederate boarding school in the south and the confederates are the ones who want to keep their slaves yes. um but there are no slaves in the movie <laughs> not, a, not a slave in sight but uh i mean there she did um sofia coppola did receive a bit of criticism for not including A slave character who was in the original book and who was in Don Siegel's film adaptation, she sort of removed that character and instead has a way of explaining that, you know, all the slaves had or a lot of the slaves, at least at the time, had been sent home or sent away. Because things were so dire then. Mm. So, I mean, like, I'm, I'm definitely in the camp where I don't feel as though the film suffers for that. And I know it's a complicated issue. And I don't think that we should be erasing any form of our history, no matter how, how unpleasant. But I also don't know that Sophia Coppola is the right person to tell a story about slavery. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, it's like me. Just like Christopher Nolan has a type, so does she. So, it's just, you mm-hmm. know, like, she tells these stories of white girls, typically from privilege sort of experiencing some form of existential crisis or ennui or what have you. And Mm. I don't, I I don't know that that's the right place where you want to start talking about slavery.
1: Yeah,
0: this is true. This is true. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it is. uh, Yeah, you're right. She does tell these stories about white ennui and, uh, and for my sins, I I love them all. Like I even loved somewhere and I'm afraid to revisit it because I I like holding, you know, in case it doesn't hold up because I love Coppola's glacial pace what she does, she does so well. She pulls so much out of silence and stillness. And when you throw in all of these passionate and desperate characters into that sort of a film, I think it really pays off. But it hits the point at which I wanted her to just cut loose. And she kind of does, but I feel like she could have pushed it so much further. The big resolution scene, without, you know, spoiling it too much, I felt that held back. It could have been so much more intense, so much... Gory or not not gory, but um i guess emotionally gory uh yeah. <laughs> I, I felt that could have been pushed up to 11 but look overall like i really liked it i love a good southern gothic thriller and i was mostly satisfied by it
2: uh, sofia coppola is one of my favorite directors of all time and the only film she's ever made that's disappointed me is the bling ring because it was just like an easy <laughs> mark for her and i don't understand how she screwed it up but <laughs> i mean i i love i love the beguiled i've seen the original the original is wild like that movie is out of its damn mind like really it's a completely different animal i mean like basically comparing don siegel's the beguiled to sophia coppola's the beguiled is like comparing stanley kubrick's the shining to stephen king's book the shining not his tv miniseries which was god awful but (laughs) it really is i mean it's like it's not that they're i mean it's kind of like apples and oranges i mean they're both fruit But uh, they're very different. And I think you can appreciate them both and love them both equally, but for completely different reasons. And I admired the restraint. I mean, you were talking about how you felt like the end should, should have maybe been more intense in some way or more visceral. But I like the restraint of it because her version says so much by saying so little. Like mm. there's a lot implied thematically in gender dynamics. I mean, Colin Farrell's soldier, I mean, he lays it on thick. It's like cringe worthy. <laughs> but with every woman, he's a different shade of casual misogyny. It's kind of amazing. It's like, you have like the downright jerk, you have the one who's like appealing to the virginal girl and being the good boy. And then you have, you know, the one that's like no nonsense. And I mean, he just tells all of them what he knows they want to hear mm and he's just like playing them all. It it's kind of amazing to see that variety of toxic male bs on display <laughs> in one character.
0: Yeah, I think Sophia Coppola is is the right choice for a film like this where you know you, you need to see a character like this from a female point of view.
2: Right, no, I mean like her film is all female gaze. I would compare sort of the experience in a way. I mean we're only because we're seeing so much of it now or it feels like we're seeing so much of it now or any of it at all really is that, you know, you watch wonder woman and it's like eye-opening to see a film, like a superhero movie with this like female superhero that's shot through the eyes of another woman and not through a man. So with the beguiled, it's kind of the same thing. Like we had that story through the eyes of a guy and it was like sort of exploitative and campy and just like really, really bizarre and, (laughs) and, the tonal quality. I mean, cause there's also the seventies. I mean, like that was like the wild, wild west of Hollywood. So you could just do anything. You could make like 20 movies in one movie and get away with it. <laughs> but Now there's like, you know, that's like tonally inconsistent. And so hers is like, you're saying it's like through the eyes of a woman. This is a woman's perspective on this particular story and it is more artful and more graceful. And it's the first time that she, I feel as though has really tackled something that's this weighty, like, you know social issues and so here it's gender dynamics Mm. and like usually we just see these stories of young women who are sad (laughs) and so privileged but so sad and lonely
0: yeah the 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 privilege thing i think uh you, you feel a lot more for them given there's a war going on in the background and you know the danger is upped more than you know i'm rich and i'm sad which i still love her i'm rich and i'm sad films but um I think the war certainly helps helps sympathize with the characters a lot.
2: Yeah, and there's still some of that privilege. You see it with Elle Fanning in the garden trying to – I mean, she's just, like, very disinterested in hoeing the garden. Mm. And just, like – it's like (laughs) none of them really know what to do, you know. They're all trying their best. I mean, that's something that keeps coming up in the film. Is like, oh, you need a man here to help tend the garden and take care of these, like, manly things because – your slave is gone. And that's really it. It's just like actually taking the slave character out of the film, it kind of enhances the fact that these women are, you know, completely alone and have no help. And they're not helpless. I mean, Nicole Kidman certainly is not helpless. She makes that very known. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's just they, they they these are women who are accustomed to a certain style of living and they don't have it anymore and and what they did have is soldiers threatening to take it away from them and the, the president threatening to take it away from them and mm. it's an interesting way to empathize with these characters really because i you know <laughs> people should not have slaves but still you kind of like feel for these women because they are women besieged by a man
0: yeah i'm trying to think of a really good segue from the civil war to the War of the, the planet of the apes um uh, and I've kind of, I can't, it, it's not, it's not happening smoothly. So were you a fan of the original series?
2: You know, I watched some of them when I was a kid. They, mm. There's a TV station here called TNT and it's basically like the channel for dads. <laughs> so when my dad would watch these movies. And that's the other thing, going back to Dunkirk, too. Dunkirk is the kind of film that you would want to watch on TNT at 4 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon and, like, take a nap halfway through. <laughs> that's what that I So it's a good dad movie. But yeah, sure. so Planet of the Apes, the same. Those were the kinds of movies, you know, I remember my dad watching, and I would watch some of them. I'm familiar enough with the original franchise to understand the context of the new films and sort of the connections back to those characters.
0: Mm. Yeah, I... um. I grew up on, on, you know, certainly the first film and, and the second sort of ca- discovered the others later in life when I bought the, the Blu-rays. But, yeah, for my money, I think the new war film, uh, which is the third in this new prequel series, is, I think, the best since the original, which, is, uh, which as an Apes fan, makes me nervous to make such a big call. But you know what? I'm going to plant my flag. <laughs> for the most part, I just can't believe they got away with making a film like this, and I think it's the only the only way you can get away with this is if you launch the franchise with, like, a James Franco-led human story and then the next film has a lot of apes but still has, you know, humans we're following and then you you get to really spread your wings with the third film and tell a story that is almost purely ape and it's incredible because, like, they don't have a human star, you know. I mean, they've got Woody Harrelson as, as the villain but they're not relying on the charisma of a human protagonist and so they have to work even harder every single moment to maintain the audience's investment in these characters. And so the result is this, the, the film that in order to work has to be incredibly emotional. And, you know, I've always thought this is a series that is fundamentally about empathy. And, and I think this is the most empathetic of, of the films, certainly the new films. And um, it's, it's an incredibly tense, thrilling film. I, uh, Oh god, I don't want to say I was on the edge of my seat. What's a, what's a better cliché? Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I think it all works. Like I love that they introduced uh, Nova, um the little human girl. I I love the comic relief of Bad Ape. I was worried it would be a little over the top, but I think it's a it's it's a quite a good counterbalance to the bleakness of of the rest of the film.
2: Oh yeah, 100%. Like I was also a little concerned when bad ape first showed up because I had heard that like Steve Zahn was playing this like ape character and it was different from anything he'd done before, which seemed to imply to me that like maybe this was a little more serious Steve Zahn. And then this like ape shows up and is like borderline Jar Jar Binks. And I was like, Oh my God. But (laughs) I couldn't help but be charmed by him. And like, I felt such empathy for him and his situation and what, what breaks someone like that to make them sort of behave this way. And given how ridiculously bleak that whole movie is, it was like, I was looking forward to like every time we got to spend time with bad apes some more. I also really, I have to say that like, I find the planet of the apes movies, or at least the Matt Reeves. So this one and the previous one, I find them sort of superior to the last two films that Christopher Nolan has done. And I think that Nolan could learn a lot from someone like Matt Reeves in terms of like human storytelling, because You know, Dunkirk had me feeling kind of cold and alienated from all of these people. But War for the Planet of the Apes, I mean, when you have a cast that's primarily primates, I felt so much for everyone involved. I empathized Mm. with the villain even. It even makes a point to have you empathize with him no matter how far down he's gone. Like you just feel for this broken person and you feel for that broken person and that monkey and that, you know, (laughs) I mean – there's something so beautiful and poetic in the way that he tells these stories. And another thing that I think really differentiates him from Nolan is that the lack of female characters. I mean, you have a couple of them in this, but the lack of female characters isn't a detriment and it's not offensive. It makes a thematic point and it does so without pointing it out to you ever. It's just, you think throughout the whole thing, like, yeah, of course there are no women around because of course men destroyed everything. Hmm. I was going to like, ask corpse... you about
0: what you, what your take on that was,
2: because... <laughs> I mean, I've seen some people complaining that, you know, like, oh, the, of course, like, the, the one main girl in War for the Planet of the Apes literally does not speak because she is mute. And it's like, mm. but that's kind of the point, too, because it's a film about communication and the various ways in which we communicate and how empathy is the best possible communication tool mm. yeah. that we have, like, on this planet <laughs> <laughs> of apes or otherwise, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: no, I, I I like that a lot. And and yeah, given that Matt Reeves is about, you know, just in terms of the Matt Reeves, uh, Christopher Nolan comparison, given he's about to do a Batman film, that's going to be the closest we have to a double blind test of Nolan and Reeves take on, you know, a single character. So uh,
2: for sure, I mean, it'll look great, but I, I know it's going to be completely different from what Nolan gave us. And that's mm. why like I love I love Nolan's Batman movies or the first two anyway, but I love Bane. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know um but i you know i'm going to kind of plagiarize myself here a bit because i tweeted this but mm-hmm. i really love the apes movies because they imagine a world in which james Franco is responsible for everything horrible that's ever happened <laughs> and i like that because i can't stand him <laughs> <laughs>
0: So what did you make of Spider-Man Homecoming reboot uh, number three? Well, I guess the first one wasn't technically a reboot because they were just booting, but the third boot.
2: Yes, the, it's the second reboot. And it's, you know, when they first announced it, I was like, oh, God, I don't know if I can do this again, you guys. Like, it's too soon. Mm. Like, give us give us some more time. Like, wait, 10 years maybe, I don't know. Like, But I have to say, like, I really love that movie. It <laughs> charmed the hell out of me. Like, the thing of it is, I think what really, really sells it not just having like Tony Stark show up and whatever, but it's that these are actually kids. These are real high school kids or as close in age as you're going to get. Or I don't know, maybe just kids look that young now. I don't know when, maybe when my parents were watching me watch Dawson's Creek, they thought those kids looked like teenagers, but I always thought they looked like grownups. I don't know, but yeah, same, (laughs) but here it's like, you know, you have like real kids. They act like real kids. kids. They act like kids. They talk like kids. There's this, like, awkward quality to them. It's very endearing. Seeing Peter Parker completely nerd out about his own powers and act like a totally irresponsible kid about them, mm. it's kind of great. It's I just I buy the whole thing.
0: Yeah. When they started saying it's a John Hughes film during pre-production, I was like, okay, there's going to be, you know, lip service, one, one scene referencing a John Hughes film. But it actually does, I, I think they actually did what they were setting out to do which is making a film that John Hughes might have made the push and pull of high school isn't just background it's so essential to the entire plot it's not a subplot it's, it's it's front and center and i think that's what makes it work the the casting choices are brilliant you know so much has been said about the fact that they've eschewed the the typical casting choices which i think it helped that there had been two versions of Spider-Man before, because you do the first comic book adaptation, everyone expects you to be as faithful as possible. Three franchises in, you're expected to be as different as possible. And that I feel that might have freed them up to do something a lot more real and a, a lot more interesting that goes way beyond some sort of, you know, surface level box ticking.
2: Yeah, it definitely doesn't feel beholden to its predecessors. You know, it's like the casting, it's a very diverse cast. You know, Zendaya is great. Mm. Like, she's she's my favorite character in that movie, and I can't wait to see more of her because she's just delightful to yeah. hang out with. Like, she would probably be my best friend in high school. Like, no question. <laughs> but it's also like, you know, we don't have to go back and, like, watch him get bit by a spider. And, like, we all know that story. Like, mm. we get it. Like, we know what you do. And we know that your Uncle Ben died. We've seen it enough. Like... <laughs> We don't need this, like, explained over and over again. And I like that because it it finds ways to play lip service to those things without making a big deal out of them because it's like, you know, you know the story by now. Like, let's just get into this. And it's about this kid not just juggling responsibilities but discovering what responsibility actually is, which is what you're doing until you're at least, like, 26 years old. So (laughs) (laughs) I assume for, like, the next 10 years of Spider-Man movies, we're just going to be, like, watching him, you know, figure out how to pay bills and (laughs) – also not get killed yeah
0: hey i'd watch that (laughs)
2: yeah
0: Yeah, i I, and i love i really love michael keaton in this i think he's that's possibly the best marvel villain to date i found him so interesting the scene you know that big confrontation scene between him and peter is just perfect i think that's one of the best marvel scenes we've seen it's just literally two people in a car and i kind of like you know i again i don't want to talk about the ending too much but there is something that superhero films do which bothers the hell out of me. And this film didn't do it. They, they make big speeches about the hero. I don't want to kill anyone. It's against my code. I can't kill anyone. And then there's always an excuse that allows them to do it. There's always, you know, oh, God, I feel super bad about this. I had no choice. Oh, that thing came out that I couldn't have stopped, you know. And, it, and it's almost like the film is sort of winking at us and going, it's all right. We can kill people if they're bad. That's a satisfying resolution and the fact that they didn't do this makes me so happy it it was actually there is a resolution rooted in his morality and that that really pleased me i was uh, i was very glad to see that
2: yeah uh, he's definitely i mean you just get the impression from spending some time with him that he's not the kind of hero that's going to kill anyone and he doesn't actually want to hurt anyone even like he just wants to keep people safe and that includes bad guys Mm. and like watching him fail at that over and over again despite his best intentions because he gets a little too cocky like a teenager would do that's really interesting to see it's it's really emotional and and it's intense too because of his age again like the scene in the car with michael keaton then there's another scene during the the climax where you know you like Peter Parker is in real danger and he may not be able to get out of a situation. And it is one of the most intense scenes I've ever seen in a superhero movie. And it's done so simply, mm. but it's, it's very effective because you, you're actually worried about this kid. Like he's all by himself and he's kind of helpless and, He's just, he's scared. He's a scared kid. And I felt like, I don't know what it is. Like, I think John Watts is really good at that. Like, Cop Car put kids in a really dangerous and intense situation. And I think I was like clawing at my own face during that whole movie and realizing (laughs) like how much it terrifies the crap out of me to see kids playing with guns. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: And this is kind of that to a different degree. It's like this kid playing with his powers, which can be used as a weapon. Like, and he's irresponsible. Mm. So.
0: All right, Britt. Please tell me who have you picked for your filmmaker of the month.
2: Anyone who knows me, even casually, will know that I picked Wes Anderson. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so why 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 Wes? When did you uh, when did you fall in love with with his films? Which which one did it?
2: It was The Royal Tenenbaums, which is still my favorite Wes Anderson film. Not just that, but like I mean, I'm obsessed with it. Like I have a phone case. That's Margot and Ritchie. I have a Richie Tenenbaum tattoo that's like the artwork from the Criterion DVD. Like I have <laughs> <laughs> That – I'm just – I'm obsessed with it. And I, I remember watching it for the first time. I was probably like 16. And I just fell in love with it. I thought – I hadn't really seen anything like this before. And high school is when I really got like serious about film. But I would loved movies since I was a kid. But in high school I worked at a video store – and I used to just like rent, you know, whatever, you mm-hmm. know, I could you just really, it was like the entire video store was my video store. So <laughs> <laughs> I could just rent whatever I wanted. And this is back, you know, before you really had IMDB, or before IMDB really blew up and became like the go to is that you used to have to go through the video store, and find movies that were from the same director and that had the same people in them. Like, Oh, I, I really like this actor, I'm going to go watch everything that I can that they're in and I loved that part of it so seeing the Royal Tenenbaums for the first time really did open an entire world to me where it was like oh this director has done these other movies I'm going to watch them and I think I watched Rushmore next and then Bottle Rocket and then just sort of like the rest as they came out I mean I remember going to visit my mother in Florida and we rented the Life Aquatic we also rented oh the the Othello Basketball movie. Yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I remember watching uh, The Life Aquatic with her and it was just a really special experience to be able to sit down with your parents and watch something that is about parental and child relationships. Mm. And she's also very artistically inclined. So she really appreciated the production design and, and all the creatures and stuff. So I've seen all of his movies several times and I'm completely head over heels in love with him. As a filmmaker, yeah. um, I don't know about as a human being.
0: Like he's, got su- like he's probably the most easily parodied filmmaker of our time because he's got such a formal, such an identifiable style, which I think is a good thing. Uh, at least in, you know, our quest to unwrap his terrorism. He's got those, those clean lines, lots of parallels, bright primary colours, you know. I, I don't know what he's afraid of, but I suspect it's 45-degree angles. Uh, <laughs> it's been interesting watching, I think I say this every month, but it's been interesting watching all the films in one go because I'm so familiar with them. But watching them all in such a short period of time, you know, of course he has those characters that are all anachronistic and precocious Mm -hmm. and he writes them like a parody of human beings you know so much of his humor stems from that this sort of mannered formality or describing something obvious or of two people having a conversation that doesn't quite match it's like they're two very different conversations that never never quite meet in the middle and it's it's all that redundancy that's that's so funny and and i there's not i can't think of anyone else who's doing that but It's such a hard line to walk because it could so easily not work. And I don't think it's an affectation because if it was an affectation, he would have screwed it up. You know, that that style, that style would have (laughs) slipped at some point. I think it's genuinely him. But the remarkable thing is that I don't think he's celebrating precociousness. I think that's why... I've never quite tracked with the idea that he's this hipster filmmaker because hipsterism is, I think all about pretension and he creates characters who are, who are funny because of these affectations, but their redemption always comes when they cast off those pretensions. When they suddenly get real, that's when things start to pick up for them. And and I guess they get what they want.
2: Right. I don't find him to be a gimmicky filmmaker. You're right. I mean, he's very easy to parody, but it's very difficult to imitate him. So Like I see – gosh, there's like a recent thing. I think it was going around on Reddit or Tumblr or one of those corners of the internet where it was just like, you know, accidental Wes Anderson. People Uh, sending in photos of like – and it's just like, okay just because you took a perfectly symmetrical photo of something (laughs) that was pastel and looked like it was from the 70s vaguely doesn't make it a Wes Anderson anything. Like you (laughs) – he is an entirely – it's, it's strange to say this about somebody who has clear points of reference, but he is an entirely original voice in filmmaking. Mm. And because he is the sum of a lifetime of his own experiences, and those experiences include particular tastes and things, like you'll see 70s influence. You'll see Kubrick. Visually, mm. he has quite a lot in common with Kubrick. But Kubrick would never make a Wes Anderson film he would never make you know cause, I mean, that would be god i'm giving the internet a really terrible idea somebody's gonna like re-edit <laughs> the shining as wes anderson film and i'm gonna have to murder everyone um, <laughs> because that's the other thing i hate is i hate those like oh what if this movie in the style of wes anderson and somebody tries to make like a wes anderson take on like child's play or whatever and it's like no dude it's very <laughs> reductive and it's sort of like a willful misunderstanding of like what makes a wes anderson film function because it is all of these moving parts it is the symmetry it is the um, shot composition it is the color palette, which is not necessarily the same in every film, but they hold similarities to each other and just how carefully plotted they are mm. you know his His color design and production design are just as important as his scripts and his characters and everything else that 's like that 's sort of a rare thing I think for mm. someone to treat those elements with as much care and attention as they would in anything else, you know, too often you find filmmakers who are like, "Oh, I'm going to make a war movie. And then they like hand it off to the production designer and, you know, here, this is what I, this is what I want. Go figure it out. But yeah. he's very involved in everything. I mean, God, just look at the way he dresses. I mean, you can tell. <laughs> so yeah. So it's a lot of elements that combines with his narratives and, and themes of growing up and relationships with fathers and, you know, like you were saying, sort of casting off this, like, precociousness or pretension and becoming a real person. Um, I mean, you're right. He he does – he's not very precious and he does not think that there's anything, like, particularly adorable about being precocious. It's, you know, it's a hindrance to being who you're going to become. Mm.
0: Yeah, what you were saying about the the style, like, the him having a, a unique style even though he's so clearly influenced, I, I couldn't agree more because he wears his influences on his sleeve. Like, he'll dedicate – films to the people who influence them or outright mention them in the text. Like, he's not shy about about who influences him, but his style is his own. And I, I think possibly the best example of that is Fantastic Mr Fox. And I've seen it a number of times, and I still can't figure out how when you watch it, you're obviously watching a Wes Anderson film. It's so him. But I grew up on Roald Dahl, and it, I, like, I feel like it's a very faithful adaptation and I can't understand how those two styles can coexist so perfectly. And and I I think that's I don't know maybe that's the Rosetta Stone to to, to Wes Anderson and his influences, but um, it, it never fails to impress me that film.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, gosh, like the <laughs> there's so many things that I love. I, I find it weirdly relatable. I mean, that's kind of the magic of it too. Is like these like stop motion foxes and dogs and stuff and yet there's something really relatable about all of them and their story i mean like the moment where it's like you're supposed to be my lab partner
1: i am no you're not you're disloyal
2: there's just this sort of simplicity to the dialogue that's very direct but it's so funny yeah and it just really captures like that particular feeling when you know, you're like jealous and, and you have a crush on somebody and they're, you know, not behaving the way that you want them to behave. And which is to say like their their whole world is not revolved around you and your needs. And and then the other thing that the other line that I love so much is at the end, because it's like this this whole line of like optimism. And it's these apples may be fake, but at least they have stars on them. Yeah. And it's just such a lovely line. And I think about it all the time. <laughs> Just like mm-hmm. apropos of nothing, I'm like doing the dishes and I'm like these apples maybe think <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's great. Well he is so good at those lines and you and that that feel again, they're two things. At once they feel sincere, but they also kind of feel like it's a parody of the inspirational speech that comes at the end of movies. But oh, yeah. there's a sweetness to it. There's something very interesting about his his storytelling and the way, you know, I think you can tell a lot about a filmmaker or a storyteller by how they choose to disrupt their characters and, and the storyline. And I find that every film he's announced from Royal Tenenbaums onwards has an immediate, well, that makes sense, like, before we've even heard the details, <laughs> you know. When I heard the titles The Life Aquatic, The Darjeeling Limited, The Grand Budapest Hotel, I, I immediately thought, oh, well, that's the perfect Wes Anderson film. film. Uh, you know, something about the exoticism of travel coupled with containment you're inside a hotel you're inside a submarine you're inside a train and there's something very appealing about that and i think you know for someone to have cultivated a style where you can hear a title and go oh well that's perfectly them but he disrupts them so early on like max fisher is expelled Mm -hmm. from rushmore halfway through royal tenenbaum works as an elevator operator gustav is in jail by act two The brothers are kicked off the Darjeeling Limited about halfway through the film. Like, he gives us these great setups and then disrupts them, you know, before we've even hit the third act, uh, which I find really interesting. I don't know if that's a a conscious thing or he just gets to a point where he's like, all right, we've had enough of this. Let's let's throw a spanner in the works.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I also feel as though that's kind of life, though, you know, and I think that's like people accuse him of being unrealistic or perhaps perhaps too twee, but I think that there is a lot of realism to what he's doing. It's just told in a sort of surreal manner. And I don't even know, it's not even like wholly surreal. It's, it's what, you know, you would call uncanny, which is another concept that just like un- endlessly fascinates me is like Freud's concept of the uncanny, which is that, you know, something looks familiar and real, but there's something off about it. Hmm. Like it's not quite, Right. And it's like something that, you know, Ruffin has, has dabbled in with like Only God Forgives is like very Freudian. And there's a lot to do about like the uncanny. And, and it's a, it's also, I think, a word that some people don't really fully understand. Uh, so I, I highly recommend reading Freud's essay on the uncanny when you have a moment. It's very illuminating. But there is there is an uncanny quality to Wes Anderson's films. There's like these idiosyncrasies in the characters, you know, they all look and, and feel like people, but they don't necessarily act like A human being you might know Mm. they don't talk like them really they're just it's like it's slightly off you know like not completely obviously off but just like just off center enough so for how symmetrical his shot composition is you have characters who are just like slightly left or right of that (laughs) yeah
0: oh god that's that's the concept i've been struggling to sort of define because (laughs) <laughs> you know, and it's so hard to find an example of that. Like all of his dialogue, you want to point that out and goes, "Ah, oh, that's that's a strange line of dialogue. People wouldn't say that in the real world." But when you look at it, like every line, kind of makes sense. You can't really pinpoint the thing that doesn't work. You know, I keep thinking back to the kid in Tenenbaums, who's uh, when the cab pulls up and it's like this battered cab. You know, parts of it are falling off. It's rusted over, and he just points and goes. There's a dent in that cab. And he's right. There is a dent at the point that he's, he's, he's pointing to. <laughs> But the whole thing is falling apart. And I feel that's, you know, that's that's (laughs) Wes telling us how he sees the world. You know, there's a dent just there.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, The Royal Tenenbaums is the one I, it is the one I just keep going back to. I've written about it before. I guess it's probably the most popular thing I've ever written because, like, I wrote it years ago and people still come up to me like, oh, my God, I love that essay. So, (laughs) yeah, that'll probably be, like, the thing I'm remembered for the most. I don't know. But it's something that... And I think all of all of the best movies, all of your favorite movies should do this. But fa- it changes as you get older, like every time you revisit it once a year, once every couple years, there's something different. Like you pick mm-hmm. up on something that you didn't before or it hits you in a spot that it didn't hit you before. And there's always something else. But I think a good example is I went to go see it in the theater and it was my first time seeing it in the theater because I had been introduced to it on DVD. So mm-hmm. I went to go see it in the theater um and Matt Zoller Seitz was there with uh, one of his Wes Anderson books and i just had like the most amazing time with it and the part that always got me at a certain point in my life was royal and richie having this moment where richie says well, you were never dying dad and he's like yeah i know but i'm going to live and it's like <laughs> and that's like another example of that like kind of weird off-kilter dialogue But it's, like, very representative of Royal as a character. Yeah. And then for me, because my dad passed away, that movie kind of changed for me and became a different, like, just kind of a completely different experience. My dad, I would say, was sort of similar to Royal Tenenbaum in some ways. Last few years of his life, he was prone to exaggerations. (laughs) Like, the time that he tried to tell us all that he had won the lottery, but he had not. And it was, like, this really sad thing. I mean, like, I don't want you to feel like you have to pity me or anything. It's fine. Um, But it was this really sad situation where he was like my my mom and him had split up the Christmas before and it was this like thing that he had sort of deluded himself and convinced himself that this was the way to get his family back. Hmm. And so that he could like fix everything and make us all like, you know, so it's like royal saying he has cancer. This is, you know, this is like my dad's way of like doing that. And so he was like, I won the lottery and it was just it was so obvious that it wasn't true and so it was like very sad wow so yeah so it's just like watching watching this movie and like watching this father who's like lying and doing all these terrible things but like really he's doing it just because he's sad and lonely and desperate for his family back and so you you feel for him and you kind of wish that it would all all work out but then I went to go see it in the theater (laughs) And so for like a couple of years at that point, like that or a few years, at least like that whole thing with, you know, you were never dying like that. It stuck with me. But then I went to go see it in the theater. There's a moment with Chaz, Ben Stiller's character, where he's saying that he's had a really bad year. Yeah. And Royal's like, I know. And it's just like for some reason, I don't know what it was. But in that moment, that that scene just like obliterated me and I just started sobbing Mm. and it had never really hit me that way before. So it's just, I I always look forward to watching it again and, and seeing, you know, what sticks out to me this time, like which character am I relating to more at this point in my life and why? And yeah, it's just, it's a very, for me, it's a very emotional movie and it really sort of defies, I think a lot of the criticisms that people have of Wes Anderson being like, you know, twee and, and, and hipstery. And it's just like, no, there's like real emotional weight to these films. If you allow yourself to empathize, if you can sort of look past the aesthetic to these characters and, and identify with them and what they're going through, I think it's important.
0: Yeah, it's, it's not. I think if if Wes really was a twee filmmaker – there wouldn't be so much darkness in his films. Like, it's it's actually quite almost concerning that nearly every single one of his films contains the death of innocence, whether that's an uh, innocence with a T, like dogs or kids. It's generally <laughs> dogs or kids. Dogs. Um,
2: yeah, it's always always. I love that he's now making a film that's all about dogs. I'm so terrified. Like he's just- making up for it and it's like yeah i mean because you know like the worst case scenario is that you go to see this movie and it just ends with the like massacre of this entire island of dogs like just mass (laughs) dog genocide but like i have a feeling that's not it. i mean it's just like this takes place in the world of dogs i'm sure like at least one dog will die inevitably because it's life Mm. but I does sort of feel like he's like apologizing for years of murdering dogs
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's and that's a stop motion isn't it that film yes Yes. Yeah. he loves yeah. the stop motion it's uh it, it's very it it does feel like the right medium for him that sort of halted reality uh movement but you know disjointed it's uh it's a it's a good medium for him i think it, it works even his even in his live action films like there's a lot of stuff in in grand budapest which uh i think there's some stop motion in that
2: yeah, yeah there's i mean there's in a life aquatic too the little um uh, yep. this the crayon fish, the little seahorse—that's that's stop motion, um, or I think it's actually claymation. But there's 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 like a meticulous thing about that craft that I can see why he's attracted to it. I mean, somebody like him, there's there's a quality to them that doesn't feel like they're they're overwrought or overworked. Mm-hmm. But you know, he does a really good job of taking, with with all the control that he exerts over every aspect of his films, they never feel. Exhausting to watch, or like, oh, you know, clearly somebody labored over this like way too much. So I can see him being very attracted to something like stop motion or claymation, where it is all about control down to the tiniest detail, and that's kind of fantastic. Mr. Fox was like that too. I mean, like down to the hairs. I mean, that movie took forever to come out because of how you know meticulous he was. Mm. And I remember there being some some small controversy between him and the animators, but. I mean ultimately whatever happened paid off because it's a great film and I was kind of surprised that this this one the Isle of Dogs didn't take too long because I was worried I was like oh great and, you know he's going to be working on this stop motion movie for like 3 or 4 years <laughs> and we're never going to you know like I'm getting old here man um, <laughs> but no I mean like he actually got it done in a reasonable amount of time so and he managed to even direct some commercials in the meantime or some short films so
0: Yeah what do you what what do you make of his commercials I I used to get rubbed up the wrong way by this particular type of art commodification, like when an artist is so, is selling a product so, so clearly, and yet I really love his TV commercials, you know, the, the, the American Express one, the, the Jacques Tati homage with Brad Pitt. It's, it's I really love that he is just kind of given, given permission to let loose so long as he names the product at the end.
2: Right. <laughs> I, I mean, I like it because it's, you know, I, I think it's important for filmmakers to make shorts and not sort of forget that skill set I mean I recently was interviewing Karen Kusama about her segment in the the horror film uh, the anthology film XX which is like all female directors and she was one of them mm-hmm. and we were talking about how difficult it is to direct something in that short of a period like you have to like really edit everything down and really have like a focused concept and I think a lot of people take short filmmaking for granted. I mean, it really is like you. I mean, when you're an aspiring filmmaker, it's you trying to sell yourself in this like very short period of time and show off as much of your skill as you can and convey as much to an audience as you can. in like, you know, 10, 15 minutes, that's not easy when you have a feature film and a budget you know, you have way more options and Mm. possibilities. And and there's so much more time to get done what you need to get done. So I, I really find it charming that Wes Anderson is still going off and doing short films, or at least has found a way to make them in a way that makes sense to him. And if that's, you know, for Prada or credit cards, I don't care. Like, fine. I mean, I'm still getting a new Wes Anderson film. I don't <laughs> care. I'm, I'm not going to go buy Prada because of it. I'm just going to watch this video and they'll probably make a few bucks off of me doing so. Who cares? I got a new Wes Anderson. <laughs> like.
0: There was, uh, there was one, one other thing I wanted to ask, which was uh, watching Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest. There is a really strange callback in which Edward Norton discovers a prison escapee uh, twice in almost the same way. And I don't know if that's a deliberate a connection or not, but it got me thinking that I find it almost surprising that Anderson hasn't tried to connect his films in a sort of shared universe type way, the way a Tarantino has, because you could easily see Max Fisher idolizing Steve Zizou or the Tenenbaums staying at the Grand Budapest. It, it, it would have been so easy to sort of, you know, lock them all in together. Do you? Do you think he's tempted?
2: No. Yeah. No, I don't think he is because I think for someone like, I mean, I would not want him to. I mean, that, Mm. that I think would indulge a lot of what people find wrong about him. (laughs) Um, it It would be sort of like. Full of himself to do so and presumptuous and I think it is better and I think maybe he has thought of that and I think it's better to leave that to the audience's imagination that I mean like you could see Max Fisher like idolizing Steve Zizou but would you want to no I mean the truth of the matter is is that they all do take place in the same universe they take place in Wes Anderson's universe mm-hmm. in his brain which is I guess kind of a corny with the way to say that but this comes at a good time because I'm actually working on a project about Stephen King's shared universe stuff and so I've been thinking about this today and the way Stephen King does it is in such a metatextual way that it makes sense mm-hmm. because he has all these connections and, and those oftentimes work better on the page anyway. But his core idea in the Dark Tower series that it eventually gets to is uh, like the Dark Tower itself is a metaphor for a shared universe. And Stephen King becomes a character in his own book, which is kind of wacky, but it makes sense. And, and so his point being is that for every artist, whether you're a writer or a filmmaker or whatever, all of your ideas come from the same place. They all come from the same well of life experience and the same well of feelings. And that's why there's, you'll find redundancies often in in an auteur's work. So it's not just visual stuff that defines them as auteurs. I think it's, it's also thematic things and Wes Anderson does have thematic redundancies, and so yeah, that would lend itself to the idea of like a shared universe. But I mean, why why create something that convoluted or precious when you can just enjoy the fact that they all came from the same person's brain? Obviously.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, that's that's really well said. I, not that I wanted them all connected, but you've certainly convinced right. me. <laughs> Well, my metric for whether you can call yourself a fan of, of someone or something is if you enjoy the worst iteration of it. So if you love a filmmaker's worst film, then you're a fan. And I, I think that's that's certainly true for 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 me and Wes Anderson. I don't think he's made anything approaching a bad film. But even when it doesn't quite hang together properly, it's still a great time. And yeah, re rewatching these films has just uh, confirmed what an incredibly unique voice he is and how great his films are. So thank you very much, Britt.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: It's been my pleasure and I'll see the rest of you next month.